Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Joshua Rasmussen. He's a philosopher at Azusa Pacific University, and his new book is How Reason Can Lead to God. In it, he tells his own story of losing faith and the belief in any ultimate purpose in life. He builds a bridge to a series of universal truths about ultimate reality using only the instruments of reason and common experience. Rasmussen constructs a pathway step by step, brick by brick, that can lead to meaning and ultimately a vision of God. It's a really interesting book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Joshua Rasmussen. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. You've written a new book, How Reason Can Lead to God. It's interesting. In the beginning, you tell the story as it sounds like you were like a teenager and you had this friend who didn't believe who, who didn't believe in God. And, and it was just a kind of, it's a tragic story. I mean, they weren't antagonistic. They just no. like were like, I'd love to believe in God, but I just can't square it with, you know, my own thinking, you know, as a thinking person. And that really seemed to send you into a tailspin yeah. and, 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 and seemed to change the course of your life in some ways. Yeah, well, it was helpful to meet somebody in the flesh who's a real person who had a very different view of the world than me. Before then, I just kind of made up in my mind a character of what people uh, with these other views might be like. And I mean, you know, this was in high school. And at this point, it was kind of my first episode of talking with a person who had legitimate questions, legitimate doubts. And I couldn't make up a story that, oh, they just were sort of hiding or wanting to protect a secret sin or something. It was like they wanted to believe that there was a deeper purpose to things, but couldn't find the evidence. And so that that did cause me to begin to think about, okay, uh, you know, what are my arguments? What are my reasons? But even more than that, I had this question about how can this person who would want to believe in God not have evidence? You know, why isn't God more obvious to this person? And that also was kind of troubling. It was kind of a itself an objection to the existence of God for me. And so this opened up the floodgate of questions and I began to really start wondering, okay, what's going on? Did you grow up, like what kind of religious tradition did you, did you grow up in? Were, were you in a tradition that valued uh, the, the kind of intellectual yes. work? You, you what, yes. what was it? Yeah. So um, just broadly evangelical or Christian, um, my family didn't really emphasize a denomination. It was more about relationship with Christ and a very healthy, happy home. Uh, my dad, he was, uh, before he got into, um, into, uh, uh, well, he became a pastor eventually, but before that, he was a math major. And so he's always been analytical. And and so this isn't one of those those cases where I, I hadn't been thinking intellectually about the questions. It was just that I hadn't really met somebody in person who had also been thinking about these things intellectually. So I had arguments. It wasn't like I had no arguments. It was just that now, for the first time, uh, I have somebody in the flesh that is challenging me and, and has responses to all my arguments. And so that helped me to see that there's more complexity than I realized. This was not a simulation. This was real life. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And, and so did, did that shape, I mean, you teach philosophy 
and that's become, you know, a vocation for you. I mean, how, what was the development like from those sort of interactions that really, I mean, you talk about really existentially, you know, working mm-hmm. through this stuff. And I mean, how did, how did that lead you into wanting to study philosophy? Yeah. So, I mean, I just discovered there's this entire field where people spend their lives thinking about these questions and going deeper. Um, you know, I think for me, when I started to investigate some of my questions, I realized that there's a depth there that people in my community just had no idea about. I had no idea about. Uh, I was reading books by professional philosophers arguing against the existence of God, as well as philosophers arguing for the existence of God. And as I was reading these arguments, I just began to fall in love with, with just trying to get to the truth about the things that are deep and that really matter, that are foundational, but also very applicable. And so, yeah, it opened up, the, it kind of helped me to see that there was this thing called philosophy. I didn't even know there was such a thing on a professional level. Yeah, it's funny, uh, Norm, uh, oh, who's the comedian for Saturday? Uh, Norm, um, oh, shoot, the guy that does the, Sorry. I, I, uh, <laughs> I can't. I can't think of his name now. But he was on Howard Stern, and he, and, and he said somebody said, "Well, comedians are like modern day philosophers." And he says, "No, there are still modern day philosophers." Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people don't know, right? That this right. actually exists. Yeah. This is not just Socrates. Even, and- yes, it's not these just dead people, right? Like I don't even like to use the term philosophy just because of that kind of impression. It's just about these endless debates um, from history. I think of philosophy more as a science. Uh, Logic is a branch of philosophy. There's developments in logic. Even in the last 50 years, there's been developments. In the last 10 years, there's been developments. And uh, and a lot of that is just completely out of sight. People have no idea. And if I say I'm interested in philosophy, I think it probably gives them the wrong impression. I would almost prefer to say I'm interested in the science of the foundational questions or the foundations trying to seek answers. So, okay. So you, you say that this book is for people that are skeptics and that basically the one thing they can believe in is their own power of reason. The, mm-hmm. the thinking, you know, the coach told Descartes, right? I think therefore I am, right? Mm-hmm. I can think through. Stuff. I mean, did you show the book to skeptic friends? Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining as a philosopher, you studied in Notre Dame. I'm sure you have lots of colleagues who are skeptics, who are not just dispassionate, but are probably fairly engaged skeptics. Oh yes, for sure. Uh, so as I've been developing the book, even even before I started writing the book, I would have many, many conversations with many different people on a variety of levels, um, professional philosophers, just internet atheists, um, just friends um, who have questions. And I, I love just, internet atheists. It makes it yeah. sound like they're like not atheists and they're, well, in my daily life, I fake to go to church, but I'm an internet atheist. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's a certain kind of group of atheists. I've noticed that internet atheists and, and academic atheists are very different in many respects, but I won't go into that. Um, no. They say that, how do, how do you know if someone is a vegan, an atheist, or a CrossFitter? They tell you. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So that also might be a difference between internet atheists and academic atheists, but, um, in terms of you know how expressive they would be about that or that sense of identity, but um, but yeah, so I, I would talk with lots of different people, and what I would find is that some pathways of reason would invite certain obstacles or questions, and then others would actually lead to forward motion, and and so I would test these different paths, and different paths would kind of appeal to different people, and so that would help me to kind of see okay, so which path is going to be the most inclusive and the most plausible to the highest number of people. And so, um, yeah, so then this book grew out of that that 
those conversations as well as all my research. And I really wanted to make a path that would serve people, that would that would feel plausible each step, and not just plausible, that each step could be known to be true by somebody who doesn't already believe in the conclusion of the argument. And so, yes, I, and I've had people come to believe in God. Uh, it's not just sort of this endless debate uh, through conversations and through reading earlier drafts of the book. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point there. It, I think a lot of books written by religious people about the rationality of religious faith aren't written really with a skeptic in mind. They're written with the, to kind of comfort the person that's already believing and and make them feel like, Hey, I'm not an idiot. I don't have to check my brains at the door. But most of the time they're writing for somebody that that to some degree is warmed up to the conclusion, even if they're struggling, right? They kind of want it, want it to be so. Yeah. And you're, and you're, you're, you take the tack of trying to actually, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for any of us to be dispassionate. We all are, you know, sure. we, but we can try to be fair and you try to really, yes. yeah, well, it, it, it fairly as you can really say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to stack the deck here. Oh yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, many uh, skeptics have this worry that people who believe in God are just trying to kind of rationalize their belief or give themselves security or comfort. And many books that I've read are kind of aimed more towards people who already believe in God. Um, and I'm reading them with this sort of skeptical lens thinking, okay, some of these steps are just not going to be acceptable unless you already believe in God, or you already believe these premises that are kind of b- part of this larger package. And I'm getting the feeling that you don't really understand this culture of people who have deep doubts as I did. And so, yes, I'm, I'm, it's not just, I'm trying to appeal to their starting points or to universal starting points. I'm also treating the skeptic as a friend. Um, Sincerely, because I have friends, and in in a way, I'm sort of writing to my younger self. You know, because it's not an enemy. It's not like I'm just trying to shame you with an argument. I think sometimes apologetics kind of uses arguments, and it has sort of this feeling of if you don't agree with my argument, then I'm going to think you're irrational. And so then, when atheist comes back and says, "Oh no, you know, you're not rational. You your beliefs are based on wishful thinking. You don't have good reasons for your. You don't have any evidence that you still believe." Sometimes I feel like that's kind of an echo of what came before, which is this kind of apologetic that said that the fool is the atheist who won't believe based on my arguments. And that's that's uh, very problematic. I, I don't think that's helpful. Uh, it actually causes a kind of polarization and a kind of battling. And so that's something that I'm very sensitive to in this book is to treat my reader as a friend. And I always invite the reader to test the arguments, to own the journey, and to try to break my bridge of reason, because if they do... I'm going to celebrate with them that they've discovered something true. Um, if if they can successfully break the bridge and it's it's based on truth, um, but if not, then they've tested the bridge for themselves, and so it's going to be appealing to them from their own perspective. Yeah, it's it's almost it's interesting. I I like the way you put that. I think in any context, you almost never win an argument because generally, if you do sort of knock the rationale or basis for somebody's point of view out there, you're, they're often shamed in some way and actually less open to considering what you said, yeah. right? Emotionally. And, and we're emotional creatures. Yeah. You can't separate that out. So I think that that's fine. Now you, you begin in many ways, you know, a lot of stuff you're doing is, is you use very fresh language and it's very, and yet you also lean on some ancient mm-hmm. uh, things, you know, a lot, I mean, the, any of any, someone who's read a little bit in the history of Western thought, well, here's some echoes of like Thomas Aquinas and mm-hmm. Aristotle in the beginning of your book, when you're talking about, look, here's, you know, reality. And let's just assume we all think reality's here, but then there are certain things about reality mm-hmm. 
that seem to point beyond itself that that are that are that are most explainable uh, with something outside of the thing as a whole. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I use Aristotle's language of potentials and actuals. So you know, some things are actual, but they could have potentially not been actual. Some things are not actual, but they're potentially actual, like maybe the next iPhone. And so I make this argument that in order for there to be a potential that's not yet actual, in order for that to potential to be actual, there's got to be some condition, some prior cause or condition that can actualize it. And this is borrowing language from Aristotle, but I'm also using this language in a way that is um, just contemporary. You know, obviously I'm translating things so that it can be universally accessible. Uh, and, And because these ancient ideas do provide a kind of foundation for a lot of good thinking about these big questions. And so there has been progress in getting that thinking more refined. And so I take into account not just the ancient thinkers, but the contemporary lens uh, that provides precision. Um, But then I also strip away the jargon, because this is something philosophers, we have a hard time sometimes speaking English. (laughs) I've noticed this. I first really noticed this when I started teaching classes. Students would use words. And at the beginning, I'd be like, no, that's not how you speak, you know, and I'm trying to teach them the philosopher's jargon. Then I realized, no, 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 it's the philosophers. Like we have a hard time speaking English. It'd be better for us to just translate our terms into ordinary language. So that's something I strive to do. Yeah. I had a guest on the show earlier this year, Edith Hall, she wrote this book called Aristotle's Way. Mm. And it's interesting because, you know, it, we know a lot more about the world than Aristotle did, the, just the physical world. And yet he was much more at home in his world. Uh, and, and, and she talks about how he's a philosopher, I guess, the, the Greek term is the doxa, the, 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 how it seems to convention. And so his, he's like, look, if your theory doesn't fit the doxa, what intuitively we just know from reason and experience, then change your theory. Yeah. And, and so much of of your arguments are saying like if you're honest like try to be honest here that intuition and reason uh, seem to you know what does Aquinas say give me a blade of grass I'll show you God exists but mm-hmm. if you look at this world of of you know everything that you see uh, came every being came from you know, arguments from things like contingency right like every mm-hmm. contingent being came from another contingent being and and, and all of these didn't exist at one time and how does the chain you got the problem of infinite regression, right? Like mm-hmm. ultimately you, you come with the something from nothing problem mm-hmm. and, and you, and you kind of get people to try to get into the, you know, that sort of thinking like, like often, like this, this really is a problem. If you think about it, yeah. now, you can avoid it, but if you stop, if you stop and think about it, it's like, huh, wow. Yeah. There, there probably does need to be a foundational some sort of, or yeah. some, some sort of foundational reality, which is sort of the bridge you build. And to. the more you think about it, the clearer that can be. And by the way, I even leave open an infinite regress. So there's a sort of um, ongoing debate about whether the universe is eternal uh, or if it had a beginning, then maybe there's still a cause that itself was caused all the way back in the infinite regress. And for the sake of just widening my, uh, my appeal, I leave that wide open. So my argument is that whether the regress is infinite or finite, there still has to be an ultimate foundational layer. If the regress is infinite, there needs to be a foundational layer to account for the very series and even to explain how it can continue to persist on and on and on. Reality doesn't just fall out of existence. Uh, you know, It's not going to. And we can explain that in terms of a foundational layer that has a robust existence. It exists without the potential for non-being. It, it exists and it cannot not exist. Um, and so that's consistent with there being a, a, a beginning to contingent things or the contingent things having existed forever. Still, 
those contingent things will ultimately rest in ultimate foundation. So yeah, I, I try to leave that open. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. And then the next step, after you sort of argue that, look, it, it makes more sense to believe in some sort of source, this this external, this foundational reality to undergird the, the, you say, I love you, you call it, just let's call it a blob, all the stuff that exists, we'll put it yeah. together in this blob. Then you say, then you, you, you get into things like uh, the foundation is not just the foundation of existence, it's the foundation of mind and reason. Yeah. The fact that, that, you know, that we look around and not that there's not chaos and, and, and weird things in the world but in general it it, it seems to you know, this is the dokes of thing like Aristotle, if it, it seems like there's more purpose than lack of purpose it seems like there's there's intentionality and purpose and and those things seem to point to not just a foundation but a foundation that is something thinking and rational because our you know like knows like and we look at the universe and can see rational patterns and stuff so they're so that it gives us a clue that the, probably whatever the foundation is, right, is is also in some way an, analogously rational. Yeah, well, and even in places of disorder, you know, you just have a mess of dirt, right? It's just disordered. And you think, well, that that's not sort of a meaningful, purposeful display of reality, this sort of mess of dirt. <laughs> but even those places have a logical consistency to them. So if you think about it, the principles of logic, okay, they apply – throughout the universe. They pervade the universe. They don't just apply to our own brains or in our own brains. They apply across all of reality. And they've applied across all of reality prior to the existence of our own, of our brains. Um, so reality has always been consistent. It's always, you might say, obeyed the basic principles of reason. And so one of the, the arguments in the book is about the very nature of reason itself. Okay. There's our reasoning, you know, but our reasoning can can be mistaken. So we can uh, we we can fall off the tr the tracks of perfect reasoning or perfect perfect principles of logic. But what is perfect reasoning? You know, what is logic? You know, this is 
one of these questions where you might not think to ask it because logic is so familiar. You know, you think, for example, that nothing can be both A and not A at the same time, right? That's a principle of logic, of reason. And that principle of reason is embedded throughout all of reality. Like nothing can be A and not A on any planet. It's not just like on Earth or like in our heads. Throughout all of reality, there's this principle of reason. And some people say, well, maybe this principle of reason is kind of a description of the nature of things. Okay, yeah. It looks like it's part of the nature of things to have these principles within them. And um, so I talk about that. And I talk about how if you have this foundational layer that we talked about, this foundation that has no potential for non-existence, it provides an anchor for these principles of reason. Because the principles of reason, like for any A, uh, A is A, the law of identity, or nothing can be both true and false at the same time, right? These principles are themselves necessary, right? They don't have the potential to not be. That makes perfect sense if they're actually embedded. These principles of perfect reasoning are embedded in the foundational layer of existence. And so this is a clue, a very powerful clue and in the book, I give many different clues, all pointing to the same uh, in the same direction. The foundation is going to have some kind of mind or mind-like or rationality built within the fabric of its of its nature. Yeah, it's interesting. There's this documentary called Collision, where Doug Wilson, who's a pastor in Idaho, a, a kind of controversial conservative pastor, does this tour with Christopher Hitchens. You know, of uh, late Christopher Hitchens mm-hmm. now, and their debate was: Is Christianity good for the world? Mm-hmm. And they were on one TV interview and Wilson said, well, I think it's good if for no other reason than it provides the foundations of logic and reason through which Christopher's, which his worldview, if everything's just matter and motion, doesn't have that. And so he needs to kind of borrow from it to critique it. I thought that's very interesting. Yeah, the, the, the stealing from the, God idea. I mean, you have to use reason to argue against anything, including the existence of God. But then what is reason? How can reason exist? And how can your reasoning, there's sort of two sides to reason. There's the perfect principles of reason, which I would argue are, are anchored in the foundation of existence. And then there's your attempts to follow the tracks of reason, your reasoning. And it is very strange how matter and motion could just by accident happen to gain the power to see into the, into these, into the foundation of existence, to see these principles of reason. Uh, that's a spectacular sort of thing. And uh, it, it flies in the face of everything we know empirically in terms of how these things come about. Um, we understand that it's through forethought that that there, that there are uh, powers of thinking. <laughs> it's through forethought that there are powers of thinking. And so this would make sense if there's an ultimate mind that has its power of thinking um, in, a, in a sort of basic way or in a necessary way. You talk also about morality, interestingly, that this foundation is not just the foundation of mind and reason, but but morality. It's, it's really, you know, Christian Smith, a great sociologist, a uh, uh, religious sociologist, and, and one of the top socio, so, social, mm-hmm. you know, sociologists in the country right now. He taught, he wrote this book, uh, about uh, called uh, what is a person I think uh, and in the beginning he notes that a lot of his colleagues in social science that the way they have a sort of diminished view uh, a less than full orb view of what he thinks a human being is that couldn't support their political commitments most of them are for universal human rights and and progressive sort of activists and yet the way they describe human being in their disciplines mm-hmm. in, in various social sciences wouldn't give way to those sort of truth with a capital T commitments. And you say, you know, basically uh, it, when they're living their moral lives outside of their discipline, they assert something that he calls soul-like. They treat human beings like souls, mm-hmm. not just 
productive kind of things. And and that really, uh, Tim Keller also in his book, The Reason for God, mm. makes a similar thing. He calls these proofs for God, the classical proofs from contingency necessity, kind of clues for God. Clues, yeah, I like that language. But then he says the ultimate argument, this one chapter says, you know, the average progressive in New York just can't take the idea that their uh, their abhorrence to female circumcision is the same thing as their abhorrence to pineapples on a pizza. Right, or right, right. You know, that, that these aren't just preferences or emotional things. That somehow, when 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 we use moral language, we find ourselves appealing to broader foundations of fairness yeah. and, and the truth that even if we stopped and oh well i mean i'm, I'm, a, I'm a relativist i really don't believe it. but it's hard to really be consistent it is that like way. you know if, if you talk to somebody who says you know we shouldn't be racists right? <laughs> and you say well why why think that it's almost like you couldn't even ask that question without them thinking you're a bad person because it's sort of embedded in our understanding of of people that there's a problem with thinking of certain people as fundamentally more valuable than others, uh, just on the basis of things that aren't value contributing, like how tall you are or the color of your skin. And um, and so well, what what would really explain the, the equality of value across people? You know, how, how can you really explain that in terms, merely in terms of matter and motion? Because there's all these different bodies that are moving in different ways. It looks like we need some more fundamental principle. Now you might say, well, there's something about consciousness. Okay. But that pushes it back. You know, how is it that consciousness, a conscious being has value? And so, yeah, this points to a very deep clue about the structure and nature of reality. That reality is a moral reality. It has these moral principles built within it. And sometimes people say, well, you know, these moral principles don't need God to make them true. Like people have value and that's just a basic primitive truth. And to be honest, I'm actually somewhat sympathetic with that to an extent. So what I want to say, and I make this point in the book, is that you can have these basic principles built into the fabric of of reality. They can be basic. It's not like God has to decide that God is valuable, if God exists, for God to be valuable. It's rather that it's just a basic principle of of, of right living and of, of being that some things have value intrinsically. It's a similar similar to the principles of logic. Some things are just true intrinsically, and they can't be otherwise. But what I point out is that theism anchors this in in the sense that if there's a supreme foundation, then you can expect there to be these principles of supreme living and supreme thinking. So you can expect there to be ethics and logic. That's expected. That's predicted by the hypothesis. And so we find a match there. This isn't about God deciding one day to make it the case that people should love people. It's rather that if God exists, then that predicts that there's going to be a moral character to the universe, which is exactly what we find. And it's hard to live consistently without that, because if you think, well, you know, maybe maybe that's not true, you know, we we really shouldn't believe that everything is, that, that there is a moral character to things. But then how do you have the motivation to even say we shouldn't believe that? You know, how do you have the motivation to deny that there's any good if you have no sense that it would be good to make that denial. Yeah, yeah. it's it's hard to be a consistent nihilist. It's difficult. <laughs> you, I mean, like, it's one of those things where you can do it. It's it's easier to be a part-time kind of, unref- like, to be an inconsistent part-time nihilist than a full, thoroughgoing, consistent nihilist. It's yeah, just exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, <laughs> now, I will say I don't like arguments from just practicality. So, I mean, right. in the end, I do want... Um, people to see if it's actually true. And I will say that, you know, this step in my argument isn't even essential to the argument, 
but it does add another clue that points to the same conclusion in an independent way. Yeah, this is you. You talk about it, it's really interesting because you talk about objections to the bridge, and you talk about things like the problem of evil, which is probably, I mean, it, one of the biggest challenges for people. It, it just. Just, not just intellectually, but existentially. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about this dream you had, <laughs> this guy with a metal stump for a hand. I'm like, wow, you have a very nerdy, vivid dreams. I love that. I have That's, lots of strange I, dreams where I like. I love yeah. it. And, and this guy is like challenging you about God, and 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 you wind up having compassion on this guy, and that really opens something up to you. Yeah, I still remember that. I mean, I was very passionate in my dream, and I just had this feeling. I this is one of those dreams where I didn't know that I was dreaming. Sometimes I, I realize I'm dreaming, you know, that I can control the dreams. But in this case, I thought it was real. I was just talking with this guy and I just was making this argument using probability theory and trying to explain how evil is actually another clue that points to the moral character of the universe and to moral agents that can be part of this adventure and solve problems. And, um, it, you know, it, it, there are real problems. It's not to make light of the problems, but it's just that it's another clue that points back to the moral character of the universe. And yeah, then in my dream, I was horrified because this guy turns his head and I see that it's shaved off and I could see his brain and it was red. And like in the dream, like I had this instant knowledge that he had been injured in the war, some war. And I had this thought that, wow, he's not really even capable of thinking perfectly rationally. And I like what you said earlier about how we are emotional beings, you know, so that we're whole creatures. And he began to put his arm out to me and he told me he wanted to feel my compassion. And I saw that he had no hand. It was just a stump. And so I put out my hand and I wanted nothing more in that moment than that he would feel loved by me. I didn't want to win an argument. I didn't want to show that he was wrong. I just wanted him to feel loved. And then I woke up and I'm like, oh, that's a strange dream. But I think it's kind of ironic because sometimes we'll have these arguments for the value of people but then we'll present them in a way that actually undermines and diminishes the value of people because we'll present them in a way that's kind of conquering or shame-based. Shame you know, you have to believe me or I'm going to think you're irrational. And so we're kind of contradicting the very point of the argument was to give a reason to anchor the value of people ultimately in supreme value that undergirds everything. And so I think a lot about that. I think a lot about how, you know, arguments are valuable, reasons are valuable, but if reasons flow through a current of psychology and that psychology is muddy, um, it's not going to be, it's not going to be well received. It's not going to actually serve anybody. Hans von Balthasar, wrote, a famous Catholic theologian of the 20th century, wrote the book, this great book called Love Alone is Credible. Mm-hmm. And in the third chapter of that book, he, he opens with these words. It says, neither religious philosophy nor existence can provide the criterion for the genuineness of Christianity. In philosophy, man discovers what is humanly knowable about the depths of being. Mm. In existence, man lives out what is humanly livable. But Christianity disappears the moment it, it allows itself to be dissolved into a transcendental precondition of human self-understanding in thinking or living knowledge or deed. So, so I wonder, like, you build a bridge, right, to God, and yet the God... That you that you build a bridge to could be the god of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, or it could yes. be the god of kind of a, 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 a maybe a deist or something. I mean, maybe not a deist, but some sort of generic yes. monotheism. So, I mean, how do you, then? How do you get from beyond? Because you're a Christian and you teach at a Christian university, mm-hmm. right? You're you know you're, you're a 
was that member of the hair club for men commercials? The guy would say, I'm not just the president of the hair club. I'm also a client. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, a, you're also mm-hmm. a client. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, so uh, on some level, you know, you, you do have these, this thrust in the new Testament almost that, that, you know, God uses the foolishness, uh, uh, you know, to shame mm-hmm. the wise. I mean, how, and that so much of, of the revelation mm-hmm. of the powerless God is counter to our, our, our reason. How do you, how do you sort of make that bridge from, the kind of natural theology or the kind of, you know, philosophical bridge to God, to the God in, in particular that you can only know by something like revelation, just like yeah. you can only know a person if they reveal who they are to you. Yeah, I love that question because it gets at, I think, a, one of the common barriers to relationship with God or intimacy with God. So sometimes people, they'll look out at the religions and they'll see a kind of competition for their God. For each religion has its own God. And so each person is saying, my God is the true God. And this competition makes people feel lost because it almost looks like every God is as arbitrary as the culture from which it came. And and they can't all be true because they're incompatible. And so it's sort of unlikely that any of them are true. In fact, it's actually way more plausible that belief in God is just an artifact of your culture um, and a desire for comfort. You know, it gives you reason for hope. But it couldn't, it couldn't be based on any kind of sort of universal critical analysis of reality, okay? And so what I wanted to do is I wanted people to see that actually we can flip things around. So we can use reason to investigate the foundations of things, and we can see a supreme nature there. So there are many different clues that point to that, and more than clues. I mean, lines of arguments that I think you can deduce that from, that you can actually see that, that the foundation has to have this kind of supreme, this supreme nature. And then from there, you can use this as a foundation for looking at more specific uh, beliefs or um, hypotheses about the interaction of that foundation with human beings and in, 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 in to the world. And so then, then I find it very helpful because if I don't already believe that there's some foundational being or uh, God, then I feel kind of lost. Like there's all these different competing claims. How can I even begin to investigate it? Well, now if I already have a belief in God, now I can investigate these different claims using some criteria. So I realized that, for example, um, that a claim that's inconsistent with the perfect foundation is going to be, uh, it's not going to be true. It's not going to be in line with the arguments for a perfect foundation. And also, this perfect foundation is going to give me an anticipation that true claims are going to be claims that will fit with the kind of thing I would expect from a perfect foundation. So to be a little more specific, I would expect a a supreme or perfect foundation to create a reality in which there are displays of love, goodness, that there are adventures, that problems are part of a greater context that lead to a greater purpose. Um, and that although there are things we don't understand, actually, I would expect there to be things we don't understand if the foundation has an infinite mind. I wouldn't, under, wouldn't expect to understand everything right away. And then I can get even more specific. I mean, you know, you mentioned, you know, Christianity. I find it enormously pa- plausible, even before I look at the historical evidence, that if God exists, there is going to be in history a display of God's love. And I can even begin to describe some of the elements of that display. One of the questions I'll ask my students sometimes in my philosophy of religion course is, what makes for the, grest, the, the, the greatest kind of a movie? Like, what are the earmarks of a great movie? And so I'll begin to describe, you know, there's, there's an act of love, there's heroism, there's danger, there's adventure, there's courage. And so then I begin to describe, you know, 
what if, what is the greatest kind of love? Like, how would you describe the greatest possible love? You know, and then there's sacrifice. It would involve the greatest being. The greatest being would make a huge sacrifice. There'd be forgiveness. There'd be redemption. Then you look into history and you see, oh, there's actually um, events in history that describe exactly this kind of love. And then you can look into the details of those events and it's going to require more analysis. Um, but um, what my project is to give a foundation for that further analysis. And I, and I really want it to be inclusive so that people can have a fresh inquiry into this. And so you're right that I don't build a bridge all the way out to a more specific, more specific details. But part of that is because there's always more to know about God. There's infinitely many things more to know about God. It's like math. You know, if I prove the Pythagorean theorem and you say, well, you haven't proved this other theorem. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we can continue making arguments. Um, so there's always more to do here. I'm curious, what is somebody who is a, still a seeker of the truth? And what are the biggest struggles intellectually or existentially you have as a philosopher and a believer? Like what stuff keeps you scratching your head or, or intellectual problems that, mm. that you continue to work on, not just for others, but for yourself? Yeah, this is good. I feel like my mind is constantly updating and revising. Um, I mean, even just in the last few years, I've been thinking more about God's relationship to matter and even what matter is. And I've been thinking that God is more pervasive, more intimately connected to things I, um, than, than I, I've used to think. And I, my view of the nature of abstract objects has changed. Um, but so I'm in a way, I'm kind of always sort of puzzling about <laughs> everything. But as far as something that, because I know what you're asking, you're asking, you know, is there something about maybe Christianity, that just seems sort of difficult to reconcile or like sort of difficult to think of. And um, I mean, there, there are things that have seemed difficult. And then as I investigated them, I just realized, oh yeah, they were difficult because they were false. Like that was wrong. Like, for example, um, views about the age of the earth, for example, or, you know, um, even just sort of the nature of scripture. Um, and so I find that my views are fine, getting more fine-tuned or the nature of hell, or, you know, judgment and how these things work. I'm trying to think, actually, is there something that is particularly troublesome right now? Um, wow, you know, I, I think probably the the one that continues to endure in various forms would be the very question that sparked the whole journey, which takes us back to the story that you brought up at the beginning, which was um, how could God not be more clear and more evident to everybody? Um, it doesn't really trouble me so much in the way that it did because my understanding of God's relationship to people is is more inclusive than it was. So I think that there are people who are connected to God, even through reason. Uh, they're connected to this part of God's nature, and it's a good, healthy connection, even while there's still other things for them to discover about God, and they will discover those things in time. Like, we're all on a journey. Um, but that still remains sort of a question that I, I continue to think about, um, sort of a complex question, you know. Um, you know, why, why isn't God more evident to people who are seeking truth and they, they want to know who God is? Um, it doesn't, it's not so much a question that bothers me in the way that it did before, but it's just a question that continues to, to um, inspire my mind to kind of think more about different angles on that. Well, I mean, you've been on a lifeline, a, a lifelong journey asking questions like th these and what's great about your book is it's sort of you letting us in on that journey. So thank you for writing this book, how reason can lead to God. And thank you for talking about it with me for a little bit. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. This is really a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to give and take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful. If you do them, 
share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Josh for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, How Reason Can Lead to God. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.